Welcome to the Prime Domino Podcast, presented by Rob Worth, consultant to public sector chief executives and author of the book, Beat the Cuts, How to Improve Public Services and Easily Cut Costs. You can request a free copy of the book at www.beatthecuts.co.uk. And here's Rob Worth. Hello and welcome. In this edition of the Prime Domino podcast, I have an extremely experienced, fascinating and thoughtful guest. He is Max Wide, the Strategic Director for Business Change at Bristol City Council. His career started in welfare rights, then working with homeless people, and you'll hear his story about taking the way disabled people were helped back into work and turning it on its head. He tells me why he doesn't like the word transformation and talks about the downside to altruism. You'll also hear the inside story of Bristol City Council's current improvement effort, the Apply Programme, problems it's overcome and what it hopes to achieve. And there's lots more in an interview that certainly made me think and reflect on many aspects of improvement and transformation. And here's the interview. Today's podcast is with Max Wide of Bristol City Council. Hi Max, thank you for joining today. You're very welcome. Morning. I'd like to start, if I might, with what led you into the whole field of organisational development and transformation? My career started in welfare rights. I did a degree in social administration and I went. I worked in an advice centre for some time and I worked with homeless people for a while in a what's called a direct access homelessness hostel in Portsmouth. It's called Mill House, very long time ago. And then I ran a hostel for kids leaving care and then I joined social services in Enfield in the mid-80s, I think. And again, worked with people with learning disabilities for quite a while. And, and then I think I got into training. I think that was really my route into it. I got very interested in training and training delivery. And then I ran an employment agency for disabled people for a while. And from that, I think that was the route into training. And then from training, I got into... It's almost like I never really intended to um, necessarily kind of go in that direction, but I just kept being pulled in that direction. So it felt like when I was working with individuals, we could do more for those people if other people had good training, and that's kind of what led me into training. And then I think when I got into training, I kind of thought, well, really, in order to be able to do this properly, then I need to be in some sort of managerial or developmental role. And so I kind of did that. And it it just felt like throughout my um, career, I've just kind of gone to the next place where I think I could really influence change at a wider scale. And I think that's really how I got into um, organisational development. I think that's true of a lot of people, isn't it, It's who get into changing systems. They start off with a small system and see a bigger one that needs change and then a bigger one that needs change yeah. and a bigger one. You're always kind of looking up and out to see what, what could be better. That's right. But it's very interesting. Some people always say to me, well, you must be kind of very ambitious. And I don't think I ever really was. I just got, it was more like I got pulled in a direction where I saw something that needed to be done and I would kind of go and do that rather than um, setting out to do that in the first place, if that makes Right. I mean, that makes sense. I think the other thing that really tempted me about organisational development is that it never seemed to work. It was always it always felt like a very kind of complex area that nobody had ever really kind of quite cracked. And so the enduring challenge of changing large organisations at some scale, I think, is continues to fascinate me. Not that I think I necessarily have any of the solutions. I hope I'm perhaps slightly further than. Um, than some in really kind of thinking about that and being a practitioner in that field. But I, I don't think by any means we have it cracked. Can you tell me a bit about what's changed and uh, how you think you're a bit further down the road? So, so I, don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I meant further down the road in my thinking about it and, and I suppose in some of the, the practices, I suppose, that I've worked with other people 
to develop um, rather than saying I, I think I'm further down the road than anybody else I don't think I necessarily am. There is a whole school of thought which is very pro the sort of tools and techniques of organisational development as we've come to know them over the years and um, I read a really interesting book I think by Perry Six the other day, Perry the number six that is called Sense Making and Settlement where he broadly debunked the whole, some of the more traditional approaches to organisational development. I think it was particularly the health service was where he was that he was particularly talking about but he was essentially saying that an awful lot of all of this activity that we have with all of the panoply of you know vision statements and mission statements and programs and projects and program boards and benefits realization and all of that kind of stuff can very often add up to nothing really an awful lot of effort goes in and in a way he was saying that that no one's really got a vested interest in saying it, it might not work because the people who talk about it generally are the people who commissioned it i.e boards of organizations and then the people who delivered it um in other words the practitioners themselves so it's very hard to find somebody in the mix who's actually going to say it has or it hasn't worked i often find quite extraordinary it's just how much effort can go in and how little can can happen at the other end of it uh, and i've seen that several times during my career and i think that's you know that's where as practitioners we have to stop and say well how what's going on here so I was involved a long, long time ago, for example, in, in, in the development of an assessment and care management system in um, a London borough. This is way back at the beginning of community care legislation, really, where they felt that you know, there was a feeling that health and social care people should work together better and that there should be case managers. And there was this whole thing about the split between providers and and purchases and all of that all of that kind of stuff and it was all kind of very good and very reasonable stuff and we went through a huge exercise where we kind of said this is the thing that we need to happen and this is our vision of what care management will look like and and everyone kind of signed up to that and then we developed a very substantial kind of manual and guidance and and all of that and then we went through a huge training program and and kind of nobody said and you know there was some resistance but nobody really said no throughout the entire thing everybody kind of nodded and agreed and said that they would do that and so on and so forth and i remember just after the point of implementation of the sort of date of implementation the team of people have been working on it we all went out for a meal i think and sort of passed ourselves on the back and said well that's great that's that's done that then. And then two, about 18 months later, we commissioned the National Institute of Social Work, I think, NISWA, to go and um, to do a, an analysis on what had changed. And the, the stark reality was almost nothing. People were using the new form that we designed, but only after they'd filled out the, the old form that they were more used to. Right. And, you know, really, the great shift had not happened, despite doing everything apparently by the book. Right. And so, and those kind of experiences, I think, just led me to become more and more fascinated with what actually drives change and what actually makes change happen and what are the circumstances that you really need to create because going through the motions never really seems to do it. But let's come back to what really drives change. But you said that people weren't saying no. Mm. What do you think in a nation transformation program, what should people say no to if they see certain things? What should they look out for? I think the first issue is that we tend to come to people with solutions before we've solved them problems. I think that's the first issue. So we frequently come and say, look, we've got this new thing that we'd like you to do and we'd like you to try. And what we don't necessarily do is get to place people to a place where they understand the problem that this thing will solve. 
so it's a bit like trying to feed people before they know they're hungry. It's, um, it right. sort of doesn't work. So I would, I would love, in a way, for people to be much, much more engaged with understanding where the, what the issue is before we move into the solution about it. But all of, you know, all of the standard kind of approaches to change management say, well, you start with this kind of vision of what you want to do, and then you kind of mobilize to deliver it, and then you have kind of all these kind of big swim lane diagrams with kind of owners and project milestones and, and all of that kind of stuff. And what I'm saying is that, that all of that can go on, and yet you still may not get significant traction in the organization because people haven't shifted during the process because they never really owned the fact that there was a problem in the first place. So hence, they, they will frequently say yes to all of the things that you're proposing on the basis that they don't want to oppose it, but it doesn't mean to say that they'll do it. And how do you think you might get people to shift? So I think there are a couple of bits to do with that, really. And I, I think the missing element in all of the change programs frequently are the people who use services. Where I have been more successful in getting people to shift is often where I'll bring together the people who use services with the people that provide them right. and get them to have a dialogue about what actually works for people. So, you know, and I've come to kind of coin this phrase, so people talk about bottom-up change and top-down change. And the thing for me which has always moved people has been what I would call outside-in change, where we are working with people who are trying to achieve better outcomes in their lives, and we're having a very honest dialogue with them about what would actually make a difference to them. And that's a very skilled, you have to be quite skilled, I think, to have that conversation. And you have to come from a particular place to have that conversation. In other words, you have to not be the provider. Providers can't really have those conversations with users because they're often stuck in a power relationship, which makes that a very difficult conversation to have. Plus, the public have a tendency to want what they know rather than know what they want or know what would be useful to them. So it's a, it's a very skilled dialogue I think you need to have with people. Right, it's the old quote from Henry Ford, isn't it? If I'd asked the public what they wanted, they would have asked yeah. for a, fast, a faster horse. That's exactly right. And uh, and I think Steve Jobs basically dissed the whole idea of um, you know kind of market research and all of those kinds of things. Right. Um, because again, people don't, and I think he said, people don't know what they want until you show it to them. Right. And so I, so I can completely, completely get that. But very often the conversations about change are had in a closed loop which goes on between sort of training and organizational development professionals, managers and staff members. And that's the sort of triumvirate of people, if you like, that kind of talk about what's what's necessary and what's needed to change. But there is no there's very little consequence to that conversation and the people who are using those services trying to achieve better outcomes in their lives are generally not admitted into that conversation, except in a kind of quite a marginal way, you know, where they're consulted about what they might like and, and the sort of wish list of stuff kind of comes back. That's not what I'm talking about really. I'm talking about genuine outside in redesign where we start with a set of outcomes and we start with a blank sheet of paper and then we and and we talk from there about what's really useful to people could you give an example of where you've engaged with service users or the public to start off that redesign process and uh, and how it worked well there are uh, there are lots really i suppose i mean I, I one of the ones that often comes to mind when i'm asked that question so as a rookie day services worker in hillingdon years and years and years ago i remember the the director of social services at the time was a man called ian white i remember that and he had this great mantra where he talked about consumerism that was his thing and that was like sounds very old hat now but in those days i mean you have to remember that Chartermark, which was the first time really local government had in any way anybody had ever really looked at whether there is any conversation between the users of services and the providers of services. And Chartermark was probably the first attempt to do that, which came under John Major's government. 
in many ways, a very long time ago, and in, and in other ways, a shockingly short period of time ago. Or if you think about local government's history and the length of local government's history, it took it a very, very long time to get around to asking people about what you know, kind of what they thought about what was being um, provided for people. So, I mean, you, you know, if you if you kind of go back to there, it's not something that organisations of local government are particularly used to. But anyway, so consumerism was the kind of mantra. Charter mark was the thing, and uh, we were sort of directed to go and talk with people about what it is that they that they wanted and so i remember going to talk to people in this adult training center out there in hillingdon and really what quite a lot of people said was well actually what i'd like is to get the hell out of here uh, you know i don't want to be in this place i'd like to have more money i'd like to have a job these are kind of people with learning disabilities that we're talking about and so i thought well i you know i wouldn't even know where to start with that i think there was a um person called a, in the job center called a disabled resettlement officer a dro and they were just scratching around trying to find opportunities for people but they had no real kind of power or resource to do any of that so i started to look around and i started just to talk to other people who were involved in who'd heard the same thing who were trying to do similar similar work and i hooked up with some people who told me about a group of people in the states that, who did a thing where they just turned the whole approach to people with learning disabilities on on its head so the whole idea in if you worked in an adult training center at that time is that people would attend that training center until they were ready to leave and the point that though the other practitioners made was that people would never be ready to leave because they had no experience of the of the real world of the world outside of that institution so you actually needed to take people to the real world um, and work with them there and then withdraw yourself gradually, if you like, as people became more used to the, the settings that they were in, rather than endlessly trying to prepare them in segregated settings. Someone once said, because you can't teach people to swim in a puddle. And that sort of seemed to sum it up for me in some kind of way. So I suddenly sat there thinking, what we're doing here is completely wrong. And so what we need to do is to find a way of supporting people. If people want to go to work, we need to take them to work and train them there. And then we need to gradually withdraw from them and leave them in the workplace. That was thinking that was occurring to people in the in the in the states. There was a guy called Mark Gold had this thing called a try the try another way system. All of that, and I eventually uh, ended up pitching a, an idea to to the same director of social services, saying, "Look, we could set up a, an employment service which was really about training people in integrated work settings, and we could use I can't remember we use what are they called CVOs the the, um, the volunteering people, the volunteer organisation where people kind of spend a year doing a, a dedicated voluntary task. And so we brought them into it, and we trained them in the in the Mark Gold method from the states, and and we and we got the funding to set up this high street employment agency, and it looks like kind of Brook Street or Reed or any of those sorts of things but it was for disabled people um and you know we we would go along to employers and we would say what we'll give you here is not a disabled person we'll give you a person competent to do this job and we will take the burden of training them to do that in the workplace you see what i mean so there was a whole way in which you just sort of turn the whole thing and you see kind of working from what people said that they wanted really looking at the evidence of whether any of the current interventions were going to produce that for them. We redesigned an entirely new service, and it was uh, very successful. I think it got closed down by cuts. I think, um, but you know, for a period of time, that you know, there was Vox Employment in Hillingdon, there was Blake's Wharf in Hammersmith and Fulham, there was Interwork in Sheffield. There was a whole kind of bunch of people who were involved in doing this this work, and I think, you know, some of that now has 
has passed into kind of ordinary practice. But it was a, a way of saying, of redesigning something or designing something to do a thing that, pe that people have said, an outcome that they particularly wanted to achieve. And to do that, we had to go through a huge amount of, uh, you know, professional opposition and people kind of saying, well, that wouldn't work and you're just building their hopes up and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I think the other thing that I really came across at that point is the power of professions to say, no, no, this is, this is what's good practice. And you would, and, and that would lead me sometimes to really wonder who is really benefiting from this service that has always been provided. Is it the professional or is it the individual? And frequently I was led to conclude it was professionals. Well, really interesting. So you basically designed a service by looking at the needs and the wants of the, the person who was supposed to benefit as opposed to the needs and the wants of the service itself. Yeah, I mean, I, when I was a trainer, I, I'd spent an awful lot of time at the kind of cold face of saying to practitioners, why did you do that, that service that you're providing for that person? Why that one? Why not this? And why not that? And why not the other? And very often the reason was because it made the giver feel better right? rather than developed, delivered a better outcome for the receiver, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and we have to be... And we, you know, and if we look at the origins of many services, which currently, you know, which still exist, haven't changed much over over a very long period of time. Many of the roots of those services are in middle class altruism. They are in philanthropy. Uh, many of those professions kind of generated from those from those sorts of movements. And therefore, there is a positive side to altruism. But there's also a slightly murkier side to altruism as well, which is really that people themselves feel better as a result of providing things. And do you think sometimes it's also people doing something for other people to make themselves feel better? It's actually is less effective than than going yeah. to people and saying what what do you want to happen? What outcomes yeah. do you want for you? Yeah. Well, ultimately, it's disempowering. Kind of has to be. Right. Because it suggests that you you know you must have what I'm providing you. Right. Regardless of whether it's useful or not. And and the whole troubled families debate has been has been interesting in that regard as well. I mean the um the work they did in Kent, just coping, I think it was called, kind of demonstrated that very often you've got large numbers of professionals surrounding individuals. Um, and I mean large, you know, and you've got you know, someone from housing and someone in social work and someone in health, someone from DWP, blah, blah, blah. And they're all doing their own thing um, in relation to this particular individual. But if you actually have the conversation with the individual and say, so who's really helping you? The answer very often is, well, no one really. Um, right. And actually what we're doing is we are, you know, we're, what we're doing really now is managing this network of professionals. Right. And I'm still in the same place that I was in. And, you know, and in a way, what that group are doing are maintaining that person in that position rather than moving them out of it, which is, again, why an awful lot of service users would say, actually, what we want is someone we just want a single person to work with us who will help us navigate all of this stuff, but also maybe has been has been through some of the stuff that we've been through and will help us get out of it. So to bring it up to present day, mm -hmm. there's lots of transformation going along in, in local authorities. What's driving that at the minute? I mean, there's the obvious things, but um, what do you think is driving that at the minute? Well, first of all, I hate the word just because it's become it's become a, a really blanket term for all sorts of things. So, The word transformation? Yes, I'm beginning to sound very old here, but when I first came into local government, we had change. Right. right? And then we had step change um and for the last decade or so we've had transformation and it means something completely different you know i mean I, I think if you really think about the word i mean it is a and this is something that local government's very good at in particular is got taking those words and then making them mean something else so transformation i think was a word that was invented because people were using step change inappropriately right 
So transformation was invented. And I, I think we need to invent another word really now because everything apparently is transformation from minor service, from minor service improvements to a whole systems change is apparently transformation. Well, yeah. interesting because one of my questions that I've got written down is what is transformation and how do you know when you've got it? So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. So I think, I think transformation for me is when you achieve an enduring and lasting shift in the outcomes that people uh, experience. I think that's transformational. So where people's kind of quality of life is substantially changed, where outcomes for people are substantially better, where people are in different places and different relationships to the ones that they had previously. That for me is transformation. And it usually relates to whole systems and whole organizations as opposed to small pieces of development work or or in, or, in, or, or pieces of improvement, which are absolutely right down the right track, but are not really transformational. Because I always think there's a step beyond that as well, isn't there? That you can, let's just step down a gear in language. You can change from one state to another. You can change from state A to state B, mm -hmm. where you would have that real change in people's lives. But I always think that is transformation something to do with the fact that even though you might have changed from state A to state B, you've also added on the, the ability to continue to, to change and morph the organization in the future. So it's not just a point change that might take a year or five years, but not only that, but you've also changed into an organization that can cope with any other changes that come along without having to restart a whole big program to do it. So I think that's I think that's right that they would be constantly yes that they're constantly changed by things from the outside. Although there is a view that organisations are, are always bound to, to their own entropy. In other words, that you unless you keep doing things to them, they will essentially fossilise. Because organisational cultures are very often the residue of success. They are what made us successful. And as soon as you get that, then you get a set of beliefs that we mustn't deviate from what made us successful, even though the world outside us changes. So what you have to build into organizations is a constant capacity to refresh themselves. Right. So, you know, if you take, I was very interesting what happened with Sony and Apple in the kind of whenever it was 10, 15 years ago, because Sony saw the emergence of MP3 technology, but just thought, well, that will never catch on. Right. Because we make CDs and people love CDs and they're very kind of pretty and people have got racks of them. And like, that's the way the world works. And nobody will want to just download stuff onto a computer and play it. Why on earth would anybody want to do that? Right. So they were so bound up in their own success and what they thought made them successful that they began to believe that that would make them successful forever. And therefore they missed, they completely missed the trick. And whereas everybody used to once have a Walkman, now everybody has an iPhone or an iPad or an iPod or, you know, and that spawned a whole industry, if you like. Has changed the entire industry and, and the people who were previously dominant just didn't see it transformation therefore is that constant capacity to kind of say what's changing in our environment what's changing technologically what's changing in terms of people's expectations and people's lifestyles and, and what is the sort of almost the desire that people have that they're not even articulating right now that we now need to shift to meet and that's a massive ask for people in organizations because many of the people who are entrenched in the old the thing that has made them successful will resist you absolutely because they believe that they will carry on being successful forever. So that's transformation for me. It's, it's things that, that constant capacity to change what you're doing, which I think is partly what you were saying, that you know, the, the organization has a capacity to continue to morph uh, into something different. Yeah. That's exactly right. But generally, that stuff needs to be generated from outside rather than from inside. How good do you think local government is at throwing away the old, the CDs and and saying no, there's there's a new there's MP3s out there. We need to do something <laughs> about it. Do you think do, do you think they're really good at that kind of thing? Uh, yeah. 
well, uh, so I've been I've been in and around local government for many many years, and I sort of went out of it for a while, and, and now I'm kind of back in back in it. Um, oh God, I think it's a very very difficult question to answer. I mean, in in one way, you can argue that local government really hasn't changed much. Well. Two bits. So one is that some, sometimes people can say, oh, and the pace of change is extraordinary and we're changing so much and, and, all, and all of that kind of stuff. But if you look at, um, and when will it stop? You know, someone, surely things will will stabilize soon and all of this change will stop is a kind of cry you hear from an awful lot of people. But And you can kind of see an awful lot of frantic activity going on an awful lot of the time. But when you really think, well, so what has actually changed in what local government does, how it spends its money and what it provides... You know, I don't know that that much has really changed. I can't remember who coined it, but someone once said that that local government is still, in a way, a set of Georgian professions. You know, teachers, doctors, nurses, arrayed around Victorian institutions, schools, hospitals, town halls, operating under a very kind of sticky post-1950s finance settlement. This pattern of local government spend between sort of social care and education and housing and you know waste and all that, yeah, that, those, those fundamental numbers haven't shifted much at all really. So in terms of the professions, the methods of delivery, the way in which money is spent, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, you could make the case to say that hasn't really changed much for a very, very, very long time. So I think it's a venerable institution, local government, and I think it is incredibly adept at sometimes giving the impression that it's going through substantial change. But really, when you when you look to it, very little has shifted. You do sometimes get kind of examples of where you see, ah, yeah, that's different and that's new. But they're few and far between. And do you think that the ongoing climate of financial austerity and cuts is pushing them further to do something more radical? Or do you think they'll just weather out the storm? I don't know that you can weather out this particular storm. Although, again, you know, local government has also part of sometimes the resistance to change is that there have been so many this is it moments where you kind of say so we cannot carry on doing what we once did um and somehow we seem to somehow we seem to get through it without radically changing things so but i do think there's something about the current period and you know just here now in the back of an election and accepting that austerity whatever we mean by that will now continue for some years to come. I do think, therefore, there is quite a stark choice for many organisations as to whether they manage decline. In other words, whether they kind of carry on doing the things that they once did, but just do less of them or protect them more or those kinds of things where you just look at the reduction of budgets versus refusing to manage decline and therefore looking at uh, the assets the authority holds and thinking about how can we manage those differently and can we use those to generate income, for example, looking at not only its budget but the whole of the budget of the public sector as it pertains to a particular area and saying can we can we do something very different with that, looking at the capacity of communities sometimes to do things for themselves and saying can we accelerate that. If you think about it in that way, then you're suddenly into not, not into managing decline. You're trying to develop a very different sort of organization. And I think there are some authorities now beginning to go down that track. I think it's rolled into the whole devolution debate and all of that. In one way, there is a terrible lack of money. In other ways, there is an awful lot of money tied up in all sorts of different pots that don't work together. And if we can begin to grasp some of those opportunities, bring some of, some of those budgets under one governance framework then there is the chance that you might then be able to do something very different. Right, because there's something like that going on in Manchester at the moment, isn't there? Would you like to have something like that for Bristol? 
Uh, yep, yeah, and we're very on with, with negotiating that and modelling exactly what that would look like. The whole devolution debate, is it isn't simply about, look, give us these things because that's a good thing to do. These are much more, you know, these are deals, essentially, where you're saying, if you give us this, then we will be able to do that. And what that will mean is that the city as a whole will make a better contribution to the UK economy. Right. You know, because that's, that's fundamentally what, what that whole debate hinges on. And from time to time, you do see some really, really exciting things. I saw a great project the other day where they would council was working with DWP, they'd managed to liberate most of the vast amount of money that is contained within what's called the work program. And they were taking people who are accessing hardship funds and saying, right, those are the people that we really need to work with and try and get them back into work. And, and they did a really kind of clever triage piece right at the beginning to determine what the complexity of the situation was. And then they were you know, working across agencies and utilizing all of that funding to really kind of take some of the real sort of hardcore out of work people and try and find them a route back into work you know and therefore you know lessening the bill on the public sector because those are the people that cost the public sector so much money not just in benefits terms but actually in terms of housing and health and all of that kind of stuff so they were taking the really difficult people if you like and saying can we develop a better outcome for those people and can we use all of those budgets to focus on that lot because that's actually where the real issue is, you know, and you still, I know it's a cliche, but there is still this thing about 80% of our resources are actually spent on not 20% of the population, but sometimes 5% of the population, uh, 3% of the population. You know, so we need to do the work with those people so that they require less in the way of public services in the future. That kind of work is clever work, I think. Right. Because it changes the paradigm of local government. Because the paradigm of local government has always been that it cleans up afterwards, that it's the sort of safety net that deals with people when they've reached crisis rather than works to prevent those crises happening in the first instance. Right. Fantastic quote I remember from Nye Bevan when he said, uh, when he was talking about the health service and people were kind of saying, isn't it fantastic that, you know, that capitalism, if you like, has developed this fantastic thing called the health service. And he said, no, he said, by trumpeting the NHS as a great um, achievement, capitalism wears the medals of the battles it has lost. Right. In other words, he was saying, we, you know, we create a situation where people are sometimes in, in health, Ill, in poverty, in want, all of those kinds of things. So they end up disproportionately, therefore, having to access a health service. So actually, that's not a sign of success. It's a sign of failure. Right. And it's, and it's really interesting in the context of the current debate, which we've just been through in the election, where everybody, everybody, everybody wants to defend the health service without actually seeing that health service is just part of a system of health. And most of the things that really contribute to health are not in the health service. They're in all of the stuff that goes on before. And if we could shift money and resource to those places, you know, it's become a strange badge of honor that we want to spend an awful lot on people when they're sick. Right. Rather than spending an awful lot on preventing people getting into that place. Right. In the first instance. That kind of thinking, I think, is what may lead us towards some transformed services, is the recognition that we just won't be able to carry on mopping up afterwards any longer. That we will get to a place where we just can't do that any longer. And therefore, we do have to shift resources. Interesting. It all comes back to that being part of a bigger system, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. Very, very much so. Bringing it back to what Bristol are doing, I know that you've had some work called the Applied Programme that's been running for a few months now. Could you tell me what triggered that work and what you hope to achieve out of it? I think on the theme that I've just been talking about, I think there's a recognition in the council that we need to redesign most of the services that we provide. That isn't, uh, <laughs> isn't necessarily a transformation of them. This is fundamentally about doing what we currently do better. 
part of what we need to achieve is a major shift from people using face-to-face and voice-based channels to a situation where people can self-serve much more readily. And that's kind of at the heart of parts of our change program and and particularly of savings that we are trying to um, achieve. We started off down that road and a lot of people got involved in doing, in redesigning things, you know, and we were trying to kind of take quite big but sort of manageable processes and say, how do we redesign that so that it did better things and cost us less. So we did things like, you know, residence parking and we, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. You know, we worked with citizens to say, you know, what's the current process? What's the new process that you would like and how do we bring technology into that so this is now predominantly an online process which is very simple and very straightforward works very hard behind the scenes to kind of verify people's identity and check the existence of their vehicle and you know all of that so it's a very kind of clever system and so we did all of that and then we did that across a number of different services and then we felt that really in order to carry on doing that so that that then needed to become a set of skills that people held at a service manager level within the organization that you know what years ago I called continuous improvement which never really had a kind of digital element to it um, but must have now so this was the new continuous improvement and we feel that everybody in the organization should have those skills and be able to apply and use those skills in perpetuity we then had a choice we kind of thought well okay well maybe we'll just put together a training course and put people on that training course and then they will come out of that and be equipped with those skills. But the reality is, with an awful lot of training, having been a trainer myself, that sometimes people come off those courses and say that was all fantastic and very, very interesting, and then they go away and do nothing with it, or their work environment doesn't support them to do something with it, or something along those lines. So in this instance, we thought we, we won't do that. We will will develop a program that people come on and learn those skills, but they also then get to apply those skills during the lifetime of the course. And so that's what we've done. So we've developed cohorts of people that come on the course itself. And, you know, those can between sort of, I know, eight and 12 service managers, I think, and some team leaders as well. And they go through a period of um, looking at their service and then reinventing it, essentially, but learning the skills as they go along of working with service users so that they help them redesign the processes. And then they deliver the project and the improvement and the benefits during the lifetime of the applied program. So it's a program for digital continuous improvement, but it's applied in such a way that the benefits are realized during the lifetime of the course itself. And we want all of our service managers and eventually all of our team leaders to go through exactly the same process so that they are delivering substantial savings and substantial improvements for the organization, but also that they're equipped with those skills so that that they can just carry on doing those things. And frequently when they look at their service, they discover five, six, seven different things which now need to be improved. And so that all goes into a a kind of backlog of improvement projects, which they'll, they'll carry on delivering after the course is over yeah the other thing to say is that there's um there are some modules on the course there's some learning parts of the course and that's called learning support that predominantly kind of goes on in workshops and in rooms and all of that and then there's a bunch of people that we use at what we call the change support layer and those are a group of people who will then help people in the delivery of those projects and those are you know business analysts and solution architects and customer experienced specialists and all people who will do an awful lot of the doing of the change and do an awful lot of the work of the change under the guidance of the service manager who's on the course. 
And, you know, we are into our second cohort now, about to bring on, place a, bring on board a third and fourth cohort of people. And, uh, you know, we can see it's beginning to deliver. People are coming out of the discovery phase saying, this is the opportunity we've now identified and we know exactly how to deliver it and we know where the money is and, you know, all, all of that. So we're very, we're very positive about it. And I think for each cohort, I think it's targeted at saving somewhere between one and two million. So the cohorts get get pre-qualified at a change board where we say, okay, so this is the area you want to look at. What's the addressable spend? What percentage of that do we think we can save, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a kind of early iteration of what the savings might be. And then as they go into the first phase of the course, which so it follows the agile methodology, there's a whole period of what we call discovery, where you are drilling much, much more into the actual benefits and how you might actually take them out and then there's a gateway process after about two to three months where people come back and say okay we've looked at this in depth now and we know that this is where the opportunity is that we can make these improvements and these savings um, and then you get they then get the go ahead and um, and deliver those things it's fairly early in the program still with with the first couple of cohorts but have you come across any problems or adjustments you've had to make that might be instructive for for people listening I think what's interesting, I mean, I, there is definitely, um, how do you get the relationship right between people's desire to learn um, and learn, you know, new tools and new techniques and the sort of harder nosed business of driving out the savings and driving out the, the benefits. So there's sometimes a bit of a, not a tension, but you know, it's like the people who are in the sort of learning and development world need to get together and work very, very closely with the people who are in the project management and solution architecture world. And some of those professions haven't necessarily worked together brilliantly in the past. So it's been interesting for people to kind of develop and develop those relationships and bridge perhaps some of those gaps. But I think they're now doing that really, really well. I think the other bit is that this is very much about empowering service managers. And they sometimes come back from the discovery phase wanting to do things that perhaps some of the people above them find slightly uncomfortable. But that's also part of it. This is very much about giving people at a service manager level that skill, those skills so that people at a service director level can then go on and do the broader, bigger pieces of work, health and social care integration, shared services, all of that kind of stuff, which is slightly more complex and bigger scale. So those are the things that I think have come out of it for us so far. That chimes with my years of working in the public sector and, and the private sector actually as well. Mm-hmm. When you get middle and, and team managers who see something they want to change and they know it will be of benefit, it's difficult to get it past more senior people. Is there something in the programme that makes that easier? Um, I don't know if it makes it easier. It, it, it gives us a place where we can surface that. Right. And we are right in the middle of that right now. So they, you know, the first cohort did come back with a proposal that an awful lot of people further up the organisation went, ooh, not that. So it allows us to, as a whole organisation to have that to have that debate. Yeah. What it shows, if we go back to our previous conversation, it does show that we're on the cusp of transformation because it because what you're now beginning to do is to empower a whole layer of people who will now drive change in a very different way. Yeah. And they'll do that for a long period of time to come because once they've got these skills and this awareness, they're not going to move away from it. And not all of them will get promoted, do you know? So that right. so we're beginning to kind of say this layer of the organisation is now responsible for driving an awful lot of this for driving efficiency within the organization and that's a very different settlement to the one that we've had previously where maybe that sat with service directors and service managers just sort of did what they were told this is about empowering people yeah and i also think there's often the situation that if everybody agrees on what should change then perhaps you're not being (laughs) radical enough so 
<laughs> it's good to have those arguments, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. And, it, and it's also been great to have those people go out and talking to service users about how things need to change, giving service users much more status because they have a role now in redesign. They're not just passive customers any longer. They're, yeah. they're saying what works for them, what they need, what they want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then yeah. we're using that to redesign. And what's amazing, of course, is that very often people in the past have said, well, of course, if you ask people, they'll just ask, they'll just you know, want everything in the world. Not been our experience, really. People are actually very sensible and completely get sometimes that local government is operating in a very constrained environment and frequently part, you know, are willing to be part of that debate um, about how to make things about how to make things better within a particular financial envelope rather than um, just demanding more and more and more and more. I think that's right. I think people are quite aware of, of what's going on and they don't normally ask for the moon on a stick. Max, thank you very much for um, taking the time to come on the podcast today. You're welcome. been really interesting, ranged over a lot of different subjects and good luck with the changes in Bristol. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Prime Domino podcast with Rob Worth. Send emails to rob.worth at worthsolutions.com. Read the blog at www.worthsolutions.com forward slash blog and follow Rob's Twitter account at Rob underscore Worth. Subscribe to this podcast by searching for Prime Domino in your favorite podcast provider or click on the iTunes link on any podcast episode page on the website. Remember to request a copy of Rob's book, Beat the Cuts, How to Improve Public Services and Easily Cut Costs by going to www.beatthecuts.co.uk forward slash podcast.